history of the bands. Welcome, welcome to season three of History of the Bands. I am your host, the human Google machine, Brandon Withers. How is everybody? It's doing good. You know, I'm, I'm super excited. You know, we, we did the whole, you know, the little break there. You know, I, I, the last episode came out July 2nd. It's now August 5th. I was super excited. I already did all the research for season three, and I've already started research on season four, you know, just because I just get so excited researching bands. So let's like get into this great episode. Okay, so the first episode for this one, we will be discussing the legend, wait for it, Derry guitarist <laughs> and singer Jimi Hendrix. Jimi influenced so many guitar players around the world in his short time. Jimi, in my opinion, invented the guitar solos that go from, oh, that sounds pretty cool, to blowing your freaking mind. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame said that he is arguably the greatest instrumentalist in the history of rock music. Speaking of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he was inducted into the Hall in 1992. He won so many awards while he was alive and after his death. He has four albums that we're about to go over, so guess what? Class is in session. Jimi Hendrix was born Johnny Allen Hendrix, but it was changed to James Marshall Hendrix on November 27, 1942 in Seattle, Washington. Jimi had African-American and Irish ancestry. His grandfather, and I might screw this name up, guys. You know, me and them don't always get along. His grandfather's name was Berantan Berant. Bertrand, Bertrand, Bertrand. There it is, Bertrand. <laughs> Bertrand Philander Ross Hendricks, who was born in 1866 from an affair outside of wedlock with a woman named Fanny and a grain merchant that just so happened to be one of the wealthiest in the area at the time. Jimmy's grandmother. Zenora, which was just known as Nora, Rose Moore was a former dancer and vaudeville performer. Bertrand and Moore relocated to Vancouver where they had a son they named James Allen Hendricks on June 10th, 1919. 
the family called him Al. In 1941, after moving to Seattle, Al met Lucille Jeter at a dance. They married on March 31, 1942. Lucille's father was Preston Jeter, whose mother was born in a similar circumstance as Bertrand. Lucille's mother had African-American ancestors who had been enslaved people. But going back to Al, Al had been drafted into the U.S. Army to serve in World War II, and he left to begin his basic training three days after the wedding. Johnny Allen Hendricks was born on November 27, 1942 in Seattle, like I said a minute ago, he was the first of five children. So how his name got changed was in 1946, Johnny's parents changed his name to James Marshall Hendricks in honor of Al and his late brother, Leon Marshall. Now, while stationed in Alabama at the time of Jimmy's birth, Al was denied the standard military furlough afforded servicemen for childbirth, his commanding officer placed him in a stockade to prevent him from going AWOL to see his infant son in Seattle, which is like, what the crap, man? That is messed up. He spent two weeks locked up without trial, and while in stockade, received a telegram announcing his son's birth. During Al's three-year absence, Lucille struggled to raise their son. When Al was away, Jimmy was mostly cared for by family members and friends, especially Lucille's sister, Dolores Hall, and her friend, Dorothy Harding. Al received an honorable discharge from the U.S. Army on September 1, 1945. Two months later, unable to find Lucille, Al went to Berkeley, California to a home of a family friend named Mrs. Champ, who had taken care of and attempted to adopt Jimmy. This is where Al saw his son for the first time. After returning from service, Al reunited with Lucille whenever he finally found her, but his inability to find steady work left the family in poverty. They both struggled with alcohol and often fought while intoxicated. The violence sometimes drove Jimmy to withdraw and hide in a closet in their home. His relationship with his brother Leon was close but, but precautious. With Leon in and out of foster care, they lived with an almost constant threat of fraternal separation. In addition to Leon, Jimmy had three younger siblings, Joseph, Kathy, and Pamela, all of which Al and Lucille gave up to foster care and gave up for adoption. The family frequently moved, staying in cheap hotels and apartments around Seattle. He was a shy and sensitive boy. He was deeply affected by his life experiences. In later years, he confided to his girlfriend that he had been a victim of sexual abuse by a man in uniform. On December 17, 1951, when Hendricks was nine years old, his parents divorced, 
the court granted Al custody of him and Leon. So that is such a horrible childhood, and it reflects how some bad incidents just keep piling up over time. Al should have got to see Jimmy when he was born. It just it just blows my mind that the you know that's happened. But then you got to think nineteen forties, you know he was a man of color and how people of color was treated so different and cruel. We're all children of God, and God expects you to love everyone, in my opinion, and that's what the Lord says. So I love everybody, you know. But you know, the world just doesn't work that way sometimes. And I think it's a lot better now, but you know, we still have struggles like that. But anyway, let's let's not get political. Let's get right back into this here. So how Jimmy was introduced into music at Horace Mann Elementary School in Seattle in the mid-50s. Jimmy's habit of carrying a broom with him to emulate a guitar gained the attention of school's social workers. After more than a year of him clinging to a broom, like kind of like a security blanket, she wrote a letter requesting the school funding intended for underprivileged children, insisting that leaving him without a guitar might result in psychological damages. Which is horrible that he was going through that. I have been there myself. When my parents was going through a divorce, I clung to mowing the lawn every day for a couple of months. But, you know, we're talking about Jimmy here, not me. Her effort failed, and Al refused to buy him a guitar. In 1957, while helping his father with a side job, Jimmy found a ukulele among the garbage they were removing from an older woman's home. She told him that he could keep the instrument which only had one string. Jimmy learned by ear. He played single notes following along with Elvis Presley's song, Hound Dog. His mother had developed cirrhosis of the liver, and on February 2nd, 1958, she died when her spleen ruptured. Al refused to take Jimmy and Leon to attend their mother's funeral. He instead gave them shots of whiskey and instructed them that This is how men should deal with loss, which is totally not acceptable. I don't care if I hated my ex-wife, which, God forbid, I ever have one. I have been married for a long time, and I aim to keep it that way. But I keep getting off track here, guys. (laughs) In mid-1958, at the age of 15, Jimmy got his first acoustic guitar for $5. He played hours daily watching others and learning from more experienced guitarists and listening to blues artists such as Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Howlin' Wolf, and Robert Johnson. Around that time, Jimmy started jamming with a friend named Sammy Drain and his keyboard playing guitar brother. In 1959, attending a concert by Hank Ballard and the Midnighters in Seattle, that is where he met the group's guitarist, Billy Davis. Davis showed him some guitar licks and got him a short gig with the Midnighters. 
The two remained friends until Jimmy's death in 1970. Soon after he acquired the acoustic guitar, Jimmy formed his first band called the Velvet Tones. Without an electric guitar, he could barely hear over the sound of the group. After about three months, he realized that he needed an electric guitar. In mid-1959, his father relented and bought him a white Ozark. Jimmy's first gig was with an unnamed band in the Seattle's Temple de Hishir. I can't even say that word. <laughs> but they fired him between sets for showing off. He joined the Rocking Kings, which played at venues such as the Birdland Club. When his guitar was stolen after he left it backstage overnight, Al then bought him a red silver tone Del Electro. This episode is sponsored by Better Help. Hey everyone, have you ever felt just down and out, depressed, like you need somebody? I've been there before, and when I was like that, I wish I knew about Better Help. Now, Better Help is the world's largest therapy service and is a hundred percent online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then you can talk to your therapist however you feel like doing it. You can do it via text message, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions whenever is convenient for you. If your therapist isn't that right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With better help, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from an in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling, flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash history of the bands. That is better h e l p dot com slash history of the bands. And thank you, BetterHelp, for sponsoring this podcast. So to continue Jimmy's background, before Jimmy was 19 years old, police had caught him twice riding in stolen cars. Given a choice between prison or joining the army, he chose to enlist on May 31, 1961. After completing eight weeks of basic training at Fort Ord, California, he was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division and stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. 
He arrived on November 8th, and soon afterwards he wrote to his father, There's nothing but physical training and harassment here for two weeks. Then, when you go to jump school, you get hell. They work you to death, fussing and fighting. In his next letter home, Jimmy, who had left his guitar in Seattle at the home of his girlfriend, Betty Jean Morgan, asked his father to send it to him as soon as possible, stating, I really need it now. His father obligated and sent Jimmy's guitar to him, which Al had painted the words Betty Jean to Fort Campbell on it. His apparent obsession with the instrument contributed to his neglect of his duties, which led to taunting and physical abuse from his peers, who at least once hid the guitar from him until he had begged for its return. In November of 1961, fellow serviceman Billy Cox walked past an army club and heard Jimmy playing. Impressed by Jimmy's technique, which Cox described as a combination of John Lee Hooker and Beethoven, Cox borrowed a bass guitar and the two jammed. Within weeks, they began performing at bass clubs on the weekends with other musicians in a loosely organized band called The Casuals. Jimmy completed his paratrooper training and on January 11, 1962, Major General Charles W.G. Rich awarded him the prestige Screaming Eagles patch. By February, his personal conduct uh, had began to draw criticism from his superiors. They labeled him an unqualified marksman and often caught him napping while on duty and, and failing to report for bed checks. On May 24th, Jimmy's platoon sergeant, James C. Spears, filed a report in which he stated he had no interest whatsoever in the Army. It is my opinion that Private Hendricks will never come up to the standards required of a soldier. I feel that the military service will benefit if he is discharged as soon as possible. On June 29, 1962, Jimmy was granted a general discharge under honorable conditions. Jimmy later spoke of his dislike of the army and that he had received a medical discharge after breaking his ankle during his parachute jump. However, no army records have been produced that indicate that he received or was discharged for any injuries. In September of 1962, after Cox was discharged from the Army, he and Jimmy moved about 20 miles across state lines from Fort Campbell to Clarksville, Tennessee, and formed a band called the King Casuals. In Seattle, Jimmy saw Butch Snipes play with his teeth, and now the Casuals' second guitarist was performing this guitar gimmick. Not to be upstage, Jimmy also learned to play in this manner. He later explained the idea of doing that came to me in Tennessee. Down there you have to play with your teeth or else you're getting shot. Although they began playing low paying gigs, the band eventually moved to Nashville's Jefferson Street, which was the traditional heart of the city's black community and home of the thriving rhythm and blues music scene. 
to earn a brief residency playing at a popular venue in town. For the next two years, Jimmy made a living performing at the circuit of venues throughout the South that were affiliated with the Theater Owners Booking Association, widely known as the Chitlin Circuit. Jimmy also started performing as a backing musician for various soul, R&B, and blues musicians such as Wilson Pickett, Slime, Harpo, Sam Cooke, Ike and Tina Turner, and Jackie Wilson. Which, you know, I really like uh, Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson. Awesome musicians to me. In January of 1964, feeling he had outgrown the circuit artistically and frustrated by having to follow the rules of band leaders, Jimmy decided to go out on his own. He moved into the Hotel Teresa in Harlem, where he befriended somebody's weird name here. <laughs> uh, Lithothane Prejondong. 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 <laughs> I don't know what it is, but we're going to you know, call him Faye, which they were known as Faye anyway. So he befriended Faye, who became his girlfriend. A Harlem native with connections throughout the area's music scene, Faye provided him with shelter, support, and encouragement. Jimmy also met with the Allen twins, Arthur and Albert. In February of 1964, Jimmy won first prize at the Apollo Theater Amateur Contest. Hoping to secure a career, he played the Harlem club circuit and sat in with various bands. At the recommendation of former associate of Joe Tex, this guy named Ronnie let Jimmy audition and that led to an offer to become a guitarist with the Isley Brothers backing band, the IB Specials, which he readily accepted. You know, he was like down for that. So through 1964 to 1966, Jimmy Rose and play with bands and or individuals like Little Richard, Arthur Lee, Love, Curtis Knight, and the Squires. That is just to name a few of them. Now, while with these groups, he recorded R&B albums and was getting signed to recording deals, but Jimmy was just not satisfied. So by May of 1966, Jimmy was struggling to earn a living playing in the R&B circuit, so he briefly rejoined Curtis Knight and the Squires for an engagement at one of the New York City's most popular night spots, the Cheetah Club. During the performance, Linda Keith, the girlfriend of Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, noticed Jimmy and was mesmerized by his playing. She invited him to join her for a drink and then the two became friends. While Jimmy was playing with his old group, James and the Blue Flames, Keith recommended him to the Stones manager, Andrew Oldham, and producer Seymour Stein. They failed to see Jimmy's musical potential and rejected him. Keith then referred him to Chaz Chandler, who was leaving the animals and was interested in managing and producing artists. Chandler saw Jimmy play in New York City. Chandler liked the Billy Roberts song, Hey Joe, and was convinced he could create a hit single with the right artists. Impressed by Jimmy's vision of the song, he brought him to London 
on September 24, 1966 and signed him to a management and production contract with himself and ex-Animals manager Michael Jeffrey. That night, Hendrix gave an impromptu solo performance at the Scotch of St. James and began a relationship with Kathy Etheridgeham that lasted for two and a half years. But we're, we're jumping ahead here. Uh, so Chandler kept him in London and was making him a star in the UK area. Jimmy was performing as an opening act and got him signed to record labels in the UK. So like I said, he was signed and made a name for himself in the UK. How it happened was soon as Jimmy made it there, Chandler began looking for members to play with Jimmy, you know, to fill out the band. Jimmy met Noel Redding at an audition, so Redding's knowledge of blues impressed Jimmy, who stated that he also liked Redding's hairstyle. Chandler asked Noel if he wanted to play bass guitar in Jimmy's band. To which, you know, Noel agreed to it. Chandler began looking for a drummer, so he contacted Mitch Mitchell through a mutual friend. Mitch had been fired from Georgie fame and the Blue Flames, so he participated in rehearsal with Noel and Jimmy. Then found out that he had a lot in common with the other guys about rhythm and blues type music. When Chandler called Mitch later that day and offered him the position, he accepted. Chandler also convinced Jimmy to change the spelling of his first name from the traditional J-I-M-M-Y to a more exotic J-I-M-I. So Jimi Hendrix Experience performed their first show October 13th, 1966. In late October, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp managers of The Who signed the experience to their newly formed label, Track Records. The group recorded their first song, Hey Joe, on October 23rd. Their song Stone Free, which was Hendrix's first songwriting effort after arriving in England, was recorded on November 2nd. So the group played gigs, getting exposure for a while, and on March 31st, 1967, while the experience waited to perform at the London Astronia, Astronia, I can't say the word, Astronia, well, we're just going to say it's that, <laughs> uh, Jimmy and Chandler discussed ways in which they could increase the band's media exposure. When Chandler asked journalist Keith for advice, Keith suggested that they needed to do something more dramatic than the stage show of The Who, which involved the smashing of instruments. Jimmy had joked, maybe I should smash an elephant, to which Keith replied, well, it's a pity you can't set fire to your guitar. Chandler then asked road manager Gary Stickle to procure some lighter fluid. Jimmy gave an especially dynamic performance before setting his guitar afire at the end of the 45-minute set. In the wake of the stunt, members of the London press labeled Jimmy the Black Elvis 
and the wild man of Bernano, all of which got him the exposure he needed. So during all of that, the band was recording their first album called Are You Experienced? which was released on May 12, 1967 by track and produced by Chandler. Now, that is the release of the UK. It was released in the US on August 23, 1967 by Reprise Records. The album was completed in 16 recording sessions at three London locations, including Delane Lay Studios, CBS, and Olympic. Chandler booked many of the sessions at Olympic because the facility was acoustically superior and equipped with the most of the latest technology. Though it was still using four-track recorders, whereas American studios were using eight-track, Chandler's budget was limited. In an effort to reduce expenses, he and Jimmy completed much of the album's pre-production work at their apartment. When the experience began studio rehearsals, Jimmy already had the chord sequence and the tempos worked out with Mitchell and Chandler would direct Noel bass parts. The track list changed as well. The UK track list was Foxy Lady, Manic Depression, Red House, Can You See Me, Love or Confusion, I Don't Live Today, May This Be Love, Fire, Third Rock from the Stern, Third Stone from the Sun, Remember, and Are You Experienced, for a total length of 38 minutes and 34 seconds. But however, the track list changed when it came to the U.S. The track list in the U.S. is Purple Haze, Manic Depression, Hey Joe, Love or Confusion, May This Be Love, I Don't Live Today, The Wind Cries Mary, Fire, Third Stone from the Sun, Foxy Lady, but it was spelled different, and Are You Experienced for a total length of 39 minutes and 29 seconds. In the UK, entered the charts on May 27th, where it spent 33 weeks, peaking at number two on the UK billboards. On the US billboards, it peaked at number five, and the album remained on the billboards for 106 weeks, 27 of those in the top 40. The album had gone five times platinum. The album was an immediate commercial success, selling more than 1 million copies within seven months of its release. Critics was in awe of Jimmy. They loved every aspect of the album, the way it was arrange the tempo and any other aspect you can think of in the rolling stones 500 greatest albums of all time it ranks at number 30 also ranks at number three on the best debut albums of all time this is the first time i have seen where every critic gave the album five stars such a great debut album on June 4th, 1967, Jimmy opened a show in Salville Theatre in London with a rendition of Sgt. Pepper's title track, which was released just three days previous. Beatles manager Brian Epstein owned the Salville at the time, and both George Harrison and Paul McCartney were there for the performance. And Paul McCartney said this, 
The curtains flew back and he came walking forward playing Sgt. Pepper's. It's a pretty major compliment in anyone. All right. It's a pretty major compliment in anyone's book. I put that down as one of the great honors of my career. On June 18, 1967, at the Monterrey, ah, I said it right, Monterrey Pop Festival, Jimmy was introduced as the most exciting performer ever heard. Jimmy opened with a Howling Wolf song, Killing Floor, wearing clothes as exotic as on display elsewhere. Then the person went on to say Jimmy was not only something utterly new musically, but entirely original vision of what a black American entertainer should and could look like. The experience went on to perform renditions of, you know, like Wild Thing from Chip Taylor, Like a Rolling Stone from... Um, Bob Dylan, and then they did their own things like, you know, Foxy Lady, Can You See Me, The Wind Cries Mary, and Purple Haze. The set ended with Jimmy destroying his guitar and tossing pieces of it out into the audience before setting the rest of it on fire. A photo of it was taken, and it was one of the most iconic pictures in rock history. This is what shot Jimmy into stardom in the U.S. So during all of this, he was in the process of recording a second album. It is Acts as Bold as Love, released December 1st, 1967 by Track Records and produced by Chandler. With Chandler as producer and Eddie Kramer as an engineer, the band started these sessions by working on some stuff that Noel had brought up, saying, you know, he had some stuff he had written about hippies. Well, Jimmy was enthusiastic to record these songs because it was written in A with an open G chord, and he enjoyed playing that kind of stuff. I will tell you which one it is when we get to that point. The album's scheduled release date was almost delayed when Jimmy lost the master tape of side one of the LP leaving it in the back seat of a London taxi. With the deadline looming, Jimmy Chandler and Eddie Kramer remixed most of the side one in a single overnight session, but then could not match the quality of the lost mixtape for one of the songs. Noel actually had a version of this recording, like a copy of it, what it had to be smoothed out with an iron as it had gotten wrinkly like it was one of them you know like it has to be rolled up and then i guess he just didn't you know roll it back up and then it'd been stuff set on top of it so they had to sit there and iron it straight back out you could tell that uh technology has really come a long way <laughs> jimmy had become a perfect perfectionist during all this too 
he would demand retakes. So by October 1967, Chandler had grown tired of Jimmy's perfectionism. Noel was also frustrated by Jimmy's repeated demands of retakes and then began to resent Jimmy. Also, Jimmy and Mitch had began to express their opinions about creative choices that had been left up to Chandler during the first album. So, you know, some tension was building up here. Anyway, the track list is EXP, Up From The Skies, Spanish Castle Magic, Wait Until Tomorrow, Ain't No Tellin', Little Wing, If Six Was Nine, You Got Me Floatin', You've Got Me Floating, Castles Made of Sand, She's So Fine, which was that, you know, no song I was telling y'all tell you about, One Rainy Wish, Little Miss Lover, and Bold as Love, for a total length of 38 minutes and 49 seconds. The album on the UK charts peaked at number 5 and spent 16 weeks on the charts. In February of 1968, it charted at number 3 in the U.S. and also went platinum. Again, critics were just blown away by this record and was in awe. But this is actually the least favorable album by Jimmy. Though a lot of critics gave it 5 stars, there was like very few, you know, like big hits on this album. There was a few that gave it 4 or 4.5 type stars. Well, as soon as they finished this album, they went right back in to make the third album. The third album is Electric Ladyland, released on October 16, 1968 by Reprise and Track Records and produced by Jimmy himself. Jimmy began recording this album at several studios in the United States and UK between 1967 and 1968. Recording resumed on April 18, 1968 at the newly opened Record Planet Studios in New York City. So remember I said Jimmy was famous for his, you know, studio professionalism? Well, he and Mitch recorded over 50 takes of Gypsy Eyes over three sessions. Jimmy was insecure about his voice and often recorded his vocals hidden behind studio screens. As the recording process went along, Chandler became frustrated with Jimmy's demanding for repeated takes. Jimmy also had allowed his friends and guests to join them in the studio, which contributed to the chaotic and crowded environment in the control room and led Chandler to cut ties with Jimmy. So that's why the album is produced by Jimmy, technically, because Chandler just left. Noel found it really difficult to fulfill his commitments to Jimmy, so Jimmy played many of the bass parts. While recording the album, Jimmy appeared in an impromptu jam with B.B. King, Al Cooper, and Elvin Bishop. In March of 1968, he was joined on stage at the Scene Club in New York City by Jim Morrison of The Doors. So, you know, he was doing some extra things during this time while recording this album. Anyway, the track list for the album is And the Gods Made Love, Have You Ever Been, Crosstown Traffic, Voodoo Child, Little Miss Strange, Long Hot Summer Night, Come On, Gypsy Eyes, Burning of the Midnight Lamp, Rainy Day Dream Away, 1983, Moon Turn the Ties, 
gently, gently away. Still raining, still dreaming. House burning down. Along the watchtower. And then voodoo child slight return. For a total length of 73 minutes and 56 seconds. The album went number one on the billboards and gone double platinum. Critics praised some of its songs but felt like the album lacked structure and sounded too dense. Melody Maker called it mixed up and muddled, with the exception of Along the Watchtower, which the magazine called a masterpiece. Most of what else I got was basically mixed reviews, but I think it was well-loved in the end. Now, here is some controversy I found. So on the Reprise Record album cover, it was Jimmy himself. On the Track Records uh, album cover, they used their art department, which produced a cover image by photographer David Montgomery. His album cover betrayed 19 nude women lounging in front of a black background. Jimmy was very apprehensive and was surprised with this naked lady cover at first, but later said that he dug it anyway, which, I mean, I guess I can understand it's a bunch of naked women. The cover was banned by several record dealers as pornographic, which rightfully so, while others sold it with a gatefold cover turned inside out and or in a paper wrapper. You know, like the brown baggies that you get. Well, hold on, none of y'all. Some of y'all might not know that. <laughs> All right, back in the day, we used to get groceries in brown paper bags. Does anybody remember that stuff? <laughs> I remember those days. But then everything went to plastic, so y'all deal with plastic now. But anyway, back in those days, they used to take a brown paper bag, and they put the record in that, and then they... You know, that, that's how they hid the album. You just had to go up there and say, hey, I'm looking for this album. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Rolling Stones ranked it at number 54 in 2003's edition, 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, and 53 in the 2020 edition. So it moved up a spot. In January of 1969, after being gone for more than six months, Jimmy briefly moved back in with his girlfriend Kathy's apartment in Brook Street, London, next door to the home of composer Handel. After a performance of Voodoo Child on BBC's Happening with Lulu's show in 1969, the band stopped midway through Hey Joe and then launched into an instrumental version of Sunshine of Your Love as a tribute to recently disbanded band Cream. Until producers were like, this has got to end because the unplanned performance messed up Lulu's usual closing number. Then they told Jimmy he would never work at BBC again. During this time, the experience toured Scandinavia, Germany, and gave their final two performance in France. On February 18th and 24th, they played sold-out concerts at London's Royal Albert Hall, which were the last European appearances for this lineup. By February of 1969, Noel had grown tired of Jimmy's unpredictable work ethic and creative control over the experience's music, so he said he was done and quit. 
Jimmy then flew bassist Billy Cox to New York. They started recording and rehearsing together on April 21st. Soon after all this, Jimmy began staying at a place near Woodstock in upstate New York, where he had spent some time vacationing in mid-1969. Jimmy's managers arranged all of this in hopes that it might encourage Jimmy to write material for a new album. During this time, Mitch was unavailable for commitments made by Jimmy's manager, so Jimmy appeared on The Tonight Show, where he was with Billy Cox and a Sessions drummer, Ed Shanessi. I, I might mess that up, guys. It, it's a really long one. It, it's almost kind of like uh, like an Irish name. <laughs> anyway, this Ed guy was in Mitch's place. <laughs> So by 1969, Jimmy was the world's highest paid rock musician. In August, he headlined at Woodstock, which this Woodstock was amazing. For the concert, Jimmy added rhythm guitarist Larry Lee and conga players Juma Sultan and Jerry Velez. The band rehearsed for less than two weeks before the performance, and according to Mitch, they had never connected musically. Before arriving at the show, Jimmy heard that the size of the audience had grown enormously, which then concerned him because he didn't enjoy performing for large crowds. He was an important draw for the event, and although he accepted a lot less money for the appearance than his usual fee, he was the festival's highest paid performer. Jimmy decided to move his midnight Sunday slot to Monday morning, closing the show. The band took the stage around 8 a.m. By then, Jimmy had been awake for more than three days. The audience, which peaked at an estimate 400,000 people, was reduced to 30,000. The festival MC, Chip Monick, introduced the group as the Jimi Hendrix Experience. But Jimmy then clarified... We've decided to change the whole thing around and call it Gypsy Sun and Rainbows. For short, it was nothing but a band of gypsies. Jimmy then did a rendition of the U.S. national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, which it had like feedback, distortion, and sustained to imitate the sound made by rockets and bombs. Contemporary political uh, described this as his interpretation as the statement against the Vietnam War. Immortalized in the 1970 documentary film Woodstock, Jimmy's version became part of the 60s spirit, so to speak. New York Post wrote, It was the most electrifying moment of Woodstock, and it was probably the single greatest moment of the 60s. Well, to move on here, since the original group was basically disbanded, Jimmy basically went solo and named his new group Bands of Gypsies. And the fourth album is called Band of Gypsies. It was released March 25th, 1970 by Capitol Records and produced by Jimi Hendrix. So this new band was different from experienced. 
he formed an all-black power trio with Cox and drummer Buddy Miles. So let me back up here. I don't think Jimmy was ready to make a new album, but around 1966, there was a lawsuit over album release type stuff that took two years to settle. Then, like I said, his manager was pressuring him because they had signed to Capitol Records. He was pressuring him to make new music in order to satisfy the contract dispute. Now, back to the new band members. They wanted to perform and record a new album with Jimmy, but Jimmy's manager, Michael Jeffy, saw the opportunity to record a New York's performance at the Fillmore East for a live album, and the trio began preparing for the upcoming concerts and the new album. Between then and the end of December, the trio rehearsed and recorded several demos in New York City, where Jimmy recorded much of Electric Lady Land. So the band's album was recorded over two consecutive nights at the Fillmore East. The recording was supervised by Wally, an experienced sound engineer who ran a recording studio and had made several live recordings. He had already recorded Jimmy live several times, including the Monetary Pop Festival in 1967 and Woodstock in 1969. Portable recording equipment was set up at the venue and the trio performed for a sound check in the afternoon. Promoter Bill Graham billed the performance as Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies because Jimmy's new direction since the breakup of the experience six months earlier had not been publicized. The group did not prepare set lists or otherwise plans for this performance. So basically, Hendrix called out tunes to Miles and Cox and would often make time and tempo changes on the fly, alerting his partners with simple head nods or raising his guitar neck. There were some microphone problems during the first two songs, which reappeared for the first two songs in the second show as well. Jimmy also experienced tuning problems with his guitar. His heavy use of the Stratocaster's whammy bar stretched the strings and led to pitch problems, which he was often forced to correct mid-song. The track list is Who Knows, Machine Gun, Changes, Power to Love, message of love and we gotta live together for a total length of 44 minutes and 13 seconds the album peaked at number five on the billboards and did go gold it did not go platinum until 1991 many years later this album did not live up to par got a lot of poor reviews on january 28 1970 band of gypsies made their final appearance they performed during a music festival at Madison Square Garden, benefiting the Anti-Vietnam War Committee titled the Winter Festival for Peace. So Johnny Winters said Jimmy came in with his head down, sat on the couch alone, and put his head in his hands. He didn't move until it was time for the show. Minutes after taking the stage, he snapped and said some vulgar remarks to a woman who shouted a request for Foxy Lady. He then began playing Earth Blues before telling the audience that's what happens when the Earth screws with space, but with a dirty word instead of screw. You know, I'm not going to say a dirty word here. Moments later, he sat down on the drum riser 
before leaving the stage. It was stated by Jeffy, Jimmy's manager, that someone gave Jimmy LSD before the performance. Miles believed that Jeffy gave Jimmy the drugs in an effort to sabotage the current band and bring back the original experience lineup. Jeffy fired Miles after the show and Cox quit, ending the band of gypsies. So Jeffy announced soon after that that the experienced was getting back together. But when Noel came to rehearsal, he had already been replaced by Cox, who just quit Band of Gypsies. The group toured around in 1970, and in the fall of 1970, the band was doing a European tour. So Jimmy was longing for his new studio and creative outlet and was not really wanting to finish the commitment of touring. On September 2nd, 1970, he left a performance after just doing three songs, stating, I've been dead for a long time. Four days later, he gave his final concert appearance at the Isle of Furman Festival in Germany. He was met with booing and jeering from fans in response to his cancellation of the show previous night. He was supposed to play the festival the night before, but he didn't want to do it because it was raining and you know there was a risk of electrocution. Immediately following the festival, Jimmy, Mitch, and Cox traveled to London. Three days after the performance, Cox, who was suffering from severe paranoia after taking LSD, quit the tour and went to stay with his parents in Pennsylvania. Within days of Jimmy's arrival in England, he had spoken with Chandler, Alan Douglas, and others about leaving his manager, Michael Jeffy. On September 16th, Jimmy performed in public for the last time during a informal jam at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in Soho with Eric Burden and his latest band, War. They began by playing a few of their recent hits, and after a brief intermission, Jimmy joined them. His performance was uncharacteristically subdued. He quietly played backing guitar and refrained from the typical way of doing things that people had come to expect from him. Jimmy died less than 48 hours later. So the day of his death, he spent much of September 17, 1970, in London with Monica Danae Mann, the only witness to his final hours. Monica said that she fixed a meal for them at her apartment around 11 p.m. She drove him to an acquaintance at 1.45 a.m., where he stayed for about an hour before she picked him up and drove them back to her flat at 3 a.m. She said that they had talked until about 7 a.m. when they went to sleep. Monica woke up around 11 a.m. and found Jimmy breathing, but he was unconscious and unresponsive. She called for an ambulance at 11.18 a.m. Paramedics transported Jimmy to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital, where Dr. John Bannister pronounced him dead at 12.45 p.m. Coroner Gavin Thurston ordered a post-mortem exam, which 
was performed on September 21st by Professor Robert Donald Tear, a forensic pathologist. Thurston completed the inquest on September 28th and concluded that Jimmy swallowed his own vomit and died while he was intoxicated. Monica had revealed that Jimmy had taken nine of her prescription sleeping tablets, which is 18 times above the recommended dosage. Jimmy's body was flown to Seattle on September 29th. Jimmy's family and friends held a service at Dunlap Baptist Church in Seattle on Thursday, October 1st. He was buried at Greenwood Cemetery in nearby Renton, which is the location of his mother's grave. Jimmy was 27 years old at the time of his death, so he joined the 27 Club. If you do not know the 27 Club, it's an unfortunate club of musicians that died at the age of 27. Well, guys, you are caught up on the legendary guitarist, Jimi Hendrix. Since his death, he has won so many awards and even been inducted into the Hall of Fame. He was here for a short while and revolutionized the music world. Not many people can compare to his ability when it comes to playing the guitar. I only know of two that come close, and that is Stevie Ray Vaughan and Steve I. Jimmy took the world by storm. The first song I believe I ever heard was Foxy Lady in the movie Wayne's World. Then it was Voodoo Child when Hollywood Hulk Hogan would make his way to the ring in WCW and later on in WWE, which you know, you know I'm a wrestling fan. <laughs> I can't hide it. Anyway, I love Jimmy's music. He had soul in his sound, and I always enjoyed that. So let's move on to my top four albums since there was no top five albums. Coming in at number four, Band of Gypsies. Number three, Axis Bold as Love. Number two, Electric Ladyland. And number one, Are You Experienced? Well, guys, we made it through episode one of season three. So how was it? Did you like it? <laughs> anyway... Guys, this has been really fun. I've enjoyed doing this. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was just amazing to me. But anyways, if you guys want to stay up to date on what's going on, you know, I say, you know, pay attention to my to my history of the bands TikTok and history of the bands on Instagram. On Instagram, there is the link to go to Linktree, and you can go find the show on there and click there. You can go to you know like spotify or go to apple and you can listen to the show you can go to my store on my website there when you click the link tree and buy yourself some merch you can get you know t-shirts hats all kinds of stuff you can think of i guess i don't know whatever you like there's a lot of shirts there so please go buy a shirt <laughs> or get your guys some better help there's a link for that to get better help and you get 10 percent off when you use the promo code history of the bands. So the next band that I will be discussing is Lincoln Park. So you do not want to miss the next episode. I'm telling you now, Lincoln Park is a really, really good band. So make sure you're paying attention. Make sure you're keeping up with the updates and do not miss this next episode. All I got left to say is class dismissed.
History of the Bands.